This is episode number 56 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted or compromised. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. In episode number 55, I spent a great deal of time doing something that is a little unusual for the Individual One Podcast. Uh, I was uh, doing commentary that Donald Trump would very much like to hear. And in fact, uh, Donald Trump would later effectively echo This was in regard to what I refer to as a hit piece done by the New York Times over the weekend on Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Now, if you haven't heard Individual One podcast number 55, I urge you to do so because uh, I was about as passionate and angry as I get. I would say I was about at an eight or a nine uh, out on 10 scale because I immediately knew that this story was... It was just flat out ridiculous. And it was absurd, and it was wrong, and it was journalistically maybe even worse than ridiculous. It might have even been at, uh, at this level. You cannot be serious! Uh, and uh, I went into great detail about how and why I immediately knew that this story was bullcrap. And uh, what, what's maybe most interesting from an atmospherics perspective on this story is that I knew the story was bullcrap before I read it. Now, that sounds like a thing that Trump might say (laughs) out of ignorance, right? (laughs) Because, because, you know, Trump isn't big into reading. No, I knew it was bullcrap because there's no possible way that the New York Times would put something as potentially significant as a new allegation against Brett Kavanaugh, backing up a previous allegation that was never proven during his confirmation hearings in an opinion piece on the weekend in a story that did not have that anywhere near the headline. That's not possible. If it was real, it would be a weekday story in the news section, and the headline would be, shocker, New allegation against Brett Kavanaugh uh, proves previous allegation against Brett Kavanaugh. Nothing like that happened. So I was already uh, of the mindset of, okay, uh, this my, my BS detector is at a very high level. I'm smelling bullcrap. And I have to say, there was even way more bullcrap in the story than I ever could have possibly imagined, and even more than I realized on Sunday, although I was ahead of the game of, on, uh, with regard to most people when it came to deconstructing what a fraud this story was. And boy, did it collapse. I mean, it collapsed even more dramatically than I anticipated. And let's be clear about why it did. Uh, There is an entire media industrial complex, the so-called conservative media, that is invested in defending uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Correct. Because in defending Brett Kavanaugh, you're defending 
maybe Donald Trump's greatest achievement as president from a conservative perspective. Correct. And so having that in, in media industrial complex on your side is incredibly important. Now, a lot of times they lie on his behalf. I mean, they, you know, the whole everything is fake news canard. Um, we know that's not true. Correct. But the reality is that sometimes when the facts are actually on their side, they can do good. They can actually create a situation where a false story is deconstructed. And I would be all in favor of Donald Trump's fake news crusade if it was actually about real media accountability and not about protecting himself. Correct. I mean, I, that's that's maybe one of the most important things you need to know about my view uh, of Donald Trump. It's a fraud. It's not real. And he only does it when it's in his own self-interest. Well, in this case, everything conspires together because it is in Trump's self-interest. It is in the conservative media's self-interest. And the facts of this thing were totally, completely wrong. Uh, The story was a smear. There's nothing backing it up. And in fact, I believe that a an honest look at the New York Times story does more to prove that Brett Kavanaugh is an innocent man than anything else the conservative media could have possibly done. Now, the reaction to the conservative media and my efforts on this is actually kind of emblematic of the larger picture, because here's what happened. So I wrote, uh, I did the podcast on Sunday attacking this story from various different perspectives. I did a Mediate uh, column on Monday morning doing the same thing. And then as the story started to fall apart on Monday, rather dramatically, I wrote a second column about why this happened, uh, having to do with the New York Times culture, the arrogance of the liberal news media, the fact that there's nobody in the room willing to say, hey, hold on, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense because everybody in that room already believes that Brett Kavanaugh is a serial sexual predator, which he is not, in my view. And so as I wrote the second column, I started to uh, see that the conservative media was suddenly, magically, pretending that I'm a credible person again. I'm a, I'm a complete I'm complete non-person for you know 98% of the uh, Trump administration because, you know, if they have me on, there could be a security breach. You know, we, we, we could have a security breach on someone, a conservative, uh, saying something bad uh, about Donald Trump. It's almost like uh, I, I refer to trying to keep my seven-year-old daughter away from anybody who might tell her that Santa Claus isn't real. And that would be a security breach. Well, it's the same thing. You can't have John Sickler on on any other topic than something like this. Because in this situation, uh, I'm on the right side. I'm on the right team. And so uh, Fox News Channel Online uh, referenced my column in, an, in a story about the, the deconstruction of uh, the uh, New York Times Kavanaugh piece. Uh, and interestingly, the New York Post, also owned by News Corp, both Fox News and the New York Post, uh, owned by News Corp. The New York Post asked to have my second Mediate uh, column uh, edited and shortened a little bit and put into their newspaper today, which 
is exactly what happened. So if you happen to be able to pick up a copy of the New York Post, my my second column originally for Mediate on this whole New York Times Kavanaugh fiasco is in Wednesday's New York Post. Now, neither of those things would ever happen if I was not on Trump's side or if I said anything negative about Trump or if, let's say, they put me on live. Because, again, they would never put me on live because there could be a security breach. Interestingly, my old friend Glenn Beck, uh, who was once anti-Trump and is now much more pro-Trump than he was uh, previously. We've played this particular clip before from Glenn talking about me uh, several years ago. Uh, John Ziegler, I I think he's fantastic. What What a interesting mind he has. Glenn and I have had a very interesting relationship, a roller coaster ride, largely because of the Trump issue. We were very much on the same team, one of very few people in the conservative media to stay on that team through the election. But understandably, for what I believe to be mostly economic reasons, uh, Glenn has gone much more uh, towards the the Trump camp, even famously or infamously putting on a red MAGA cap at one point uh, about, I don't know exactly when it was, but it was about a year ago. And uh, and he asked me on to discuss this topic. Now, um, this will actually kill a couple birds with one stone. We're going to play the the bulk of the interview that I did with Glenn Beck uh, on uh, Tuesday morning. Now, uh, most of this deals with the Kavanaugh issue and the New York Times piece, so that'll give you a good review of of my assessment of that. At the very end of this, and we're just going to put this in uh, just for some context, uh, Beck and uh, his uh, co-host, uh, Stu, uh, give me some credit for a new book out by Malcolm Gladwell that is actually somewhat related to the Brett Kavanaugh situation, where Malcolm Gladwell, very well-respected author worldwide, has used my work to uh, to cause at least grave doubt, if not more than that, about the media's conventional wisdom of the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal. So, just for so, just so you're not uh, completely shocked and surprised and have no idea why the hell uh, Glenn Beck is bringing that up, I wanted to give that uh, context before we play this clip. So here was me yesterday uh, on Glenn Beck's uh, national radio and television show talking about the New York Times story on Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, let me go to John Ziegler. Uh, John is a uh, senior columnist at Mediate. Uh, he, hosts, uh, he is the host of Individual One podcast. Um, he has written a great couple of stories now on this this bombshell that ends up blowing up the New York Times on Brett Kavanaugh. Welcome to the program, John. How are you? Always good to be with you, Glenn. Yeah. So, um, uh, John, let's let's start with the Kavanaugh story that you wrote on Sunday. It was a fascinating story about you know how much they really left out of this story. It's not just that the accuser uh, has no accusation because they don't remember any of it. It's well, who made this allegation. Yeah, well, it's actually, Glenn, uh, th- th- it is almost impossible to fully encapsulate all the problems with the New York Times story in one column. I mean, I'm being very literal about that. And I actually think that while the conservative media has done a really good job on some aspects 
of the story. There are obvious aspects, like the one you just mentioned, that they don't didn't mention. Oh, by the way, the alleged victim of the second episode that is supposed to be this bombshell has no knowledge of this, and her friends say that they don't believe that it happened. They leave that out. That would be a big enough problem as it is. But I think we're missing something with regard to who the witness is. And it's not just political bias. This guy is a guy by the name of Max Steer. And when I read the uh, original article, I didn't know who Max Steer was. And it it, it referred to him as a thought leader who who works at a DC nonprofit. Now, you know I have a pretty you know I have a pretty good BS detector. But yeah. When I read that, I'm like, wow, That's I'm like at 11. The Patriot Act. <laughs> I'm at an 11 on who this guy is. Right. So who so so who is this guy? Well, we we now learn that uh he was one of Bill Clinton's defense attorneys during his impeachment, which would automatically show at least some bias, but I'm not even worried about the bias element or the potential political motivation. Let's go back to the Clinton impeachment. Who was on the other side of that battle? Ken Starr's primary deputy was Brett Kavanaugh. What was the alleg- one of the major allegations against Bill Clinton that led to that whole situation? Him exposing himself to Paula Jones, which started that lawsuit. Which we, I mean, so so let's let's go back to this. Let's think about the absurdity of this. So so Glenn Steer, in the midst of this incredibly intense impeachment battle, knows that his classmate from Yale, Brett Kavanaugh, is a guy who he witnessed doing exactly the same thing that Bill Clinton is being accused of, and he never mentions this to anybody? (laughs) That is such an amazing piece of evidence. That is, that to me, when I read this from you um, yesterday, I, I thought to myself, that is the most damning piece of evidence on this article than anything else and anything else. They didn't think that the guy who was coming after his client, Bill Clinton, he had witnessed, that attorney had witnessed him do exactly the same thing as he was investigating on the president, and he wouldn't bring that up? He wouldn't expose that? Impossible. 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 Exactly. And and what's remarkable to me is that I'm the only one I know of that's really made a big deal out of this. Yeah. And it's and it's not because I'm any great shakes. It's I mean, I, as you guys know, I'm I'm very disoriented in this story because I'm actually defending somebody I like and I might actually win on this one. That's very strange for me. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that never happens. So but well, I, I really honestly believe that the biggest problem here is that there's so many issues in the story. I mean, they they, they leave out their biggest bombshell. There is a bombshell. In this new book by these Times reporters, who who clearly now, as we're learning more, snuck this into the New York Times. This was snuck in on a weekend uh, uh, in a story that was labeled something totally different about Yale's culture, uh, and they snuck these things in there that did not pass muster on the news side. But the biggest bombshell this book has isn't even in the article, which is that Leland Kaiser is now on the record for the first time. Leland Kaiser, Christine Ford's best friend at the time, who was allegedly at this party, Mm -hmm. uh, which has no place and no date, no year even, uh, no way of getting home, no way of getting there, all sorts of problems. But uh, she is now on the record saying that it makes no sense to her, this story, and that she has no confidence in it, and that she was the victim of an intimidation campaign of Ford allies to try to get her to lie on her behalf. 
ladies and gentlemen, uh, you don't have to go to journalism school to know that's an actual bombshell. Mm. And that's not even in the story. And it's not in the story because it doesn't fit the narrative that the New York Times and their liberal subscriber base wants. In fact, they would probably have gotten irate if the New York Times had given that the, the weight that it deserved because I believe it shows that Brett Kavanaugh is an innocent man, not someone who you can't prove this about. He's totally innocent and that the Ramirez story that this this Times piece was focused on is an urban legend. You want to know the closest thing I can come up with to this? Remember the Richard Gere gerbil story? Yeah. <laughs> That's what this is. This is the maybe somebody actually did have a gerbil removed from them in a the hospital sometime uh, and then it somehow got attached to Richard Gere's name. Uh, well, well, Brett Kavanaugh was the most famous person to come out of that fraternity at Yale. Something happened to Deborah Ramirez and many, many years later when it became uh, politically feasible, it got attached to Brett Kavanaugh. And that's what happened here. It did not actually happen. There's zero evidence when there should be plenty that Brett Kavanaugh did anything to Deborah Ramirez. And I believe that the Ford story is a, a therapy created memory where Ford was trying to save her marriage and came up with a reason for why she was a nut job and, and, uh, and used Brett Kavanaugh because he was also famous at the time. Well, and I, she's a lefty and he, she's a righty. I, I will tell you this. I think the this is the first time that you don't really have he said, she said in this particular case that they are running uh, on now and trying to impeach him today, trying to in, in, to get to Congress to go along to impeach him right. on this story. Um, they all jumped on it before they had any of these facts. All correct. these politicians, Ocasio-Cortez and yep. Kamala Harris, they yep. all just ran with it with no evidence at all. Correct. So they have this, but because of who made the allegation the former Clinton attorney, now you have something where you can look at that and say, there's no way. There's no way this is true because he would have used it at that time. There's and, absolutely no way this is true. And 100%, but let's even go farther with that. He also doesn't do, Steer doesn't do an interview with the New York Times. Now, now, what does that tell you? That tells you, if you know anything about uh, political operatives, that he took his shot when he thought there was a chance of Kavanaugh going down. Mm -hmm. And now that Kavanaugh is confirmed, he's like, I don't want anything to do with this because, because I don't even have a victim that backs me up on this. Uh, he, he, no, I'm, I, maybe, he, maybe his memory contrived something in the midst of the chaos. Who the hell knows? Uh, you know, that was a very strange time during the confirmation hearings. But clearly he has no confidence in his own story because if he did, he'd be wanting to tell everybody and that he would be thrilled that the Times wanted to revisit this because the Senate, even the Senate Democrats didn't take his story seriously. They, they, never, they knew about it mm -hmm. and they passed it off to the FBI. So, like, well, this is so John, I want to ask you now for an opinion as a guy who writes about the media. What the hell is happening? I mean, is there any sense at all from anyone in mainstream media that it's like, okay, this has gone far enough. I, I can't do this anymore. I, I don't, well, to answer your question, I don't think so yet. I wrote, a, interesting, I wrote a column, a second column about this today, which you can find on my Twitter feed, uh, Zygmunt Freud and at Mediate, uh, about why this happened. And I think you'll agree with this column when you get a chance to take a look at it, because it's, it's about the culture of the left-wing mainstream media. And you have uh, uh, swum in those waters, as have I, on numerous occasions. And, uh, and it is my opinion that there was no one in the room when these decisions were being made about this story – 
who has the mindset of, you know, someone like you or someone like me or Stu, who might go, uh, guys, uh, hold on a second here. Uh, you know, not everybody is already convinced that, that Brett Kavanaugh is a sexual predator. I mean, they, they, everybody in that room believes that. And so, therefore, it does, there, there's not a lot of scrutiny on the alleged evidence that that's the case because they already know it to be true, even though it's not. And so there's nobody on the other side to go, hold on. And then there's a, the worst part of this, in my view, is the incredible amount of arrogance. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who work at the Times are Unbelievably arrogant. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they, you know, God could tell them one of their stories is wrong, and all they would do is pass it off for a second fact check. Uh, I mean, they, they, they really, they, they, they really do believe that if it's in the Times or if a Times reporter says it's true, that it must be true, and and that's no longer the case because. Frankly, you know, staffs have been cut. Uh, Fact-checking is no longer what it was. There's a rush to get stories out there. And, and this is the other element, they are now beholden to a liberal subscriber base and to nut jobs on Twitter who are effectively editing their newspaper. And I think that's why they left the Leland Kaiser quote out, because if they put that in there, they would have pissed off a whole lot of their liberal nut job subscriber base. And that's not the way you run a newspaper of record. That's that. It's just a business. That's all it is. All and right. their business model is appealing to liberals. All right. I've got about two minutes, but I can't let you go without saying, wow, how did you feel when Malcolm Gladwell uh, writes a book and a chapter is about Penn State and he uses most of your stuff and says, I think John Ziegler is right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, considering the hell I've been through in the last seven years, other than the one day I spent with you guys talking about this story, uh, which was uh, a reprieve, uh, I was a little bit shocked, to say the least, although I've been working on Malcolm for quite a while. Uh, I've done an interview with him. I feel people will check out uh, from my, my World According to Zig podcast. You can also find that at the top of my Twitter feed. I hope people will take a look at it. Uh, if we Ten years ago, Glenn, I believe that Malcolm Gladwell, looking at the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky case, and saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Take a look at what John Ziegler has done, would have potentially changed the world. We don't live in that media climate anymore. No, we don't. Uh, much like much like with Brett Kavanaugh. And the, by the way, the, the Kavanaugh story and the Penn State story are remarkably similar in many, many ways. And the and the bottom line is neither of them are true, and there's no evidence to suggest they're true. It's all about politics. And I hope people will take another look. Uh, I was gratified, but I'm also a realist, you know, Glenn. And so, uh, I, no, I you're not. You're a, you are a bigger pessimist than I am. <laughs> you're not a realist. You're like every. Everybody is bad. <laughs> everything is against everything. We're all going to die. If you, if you would live my life on this Penn State thing, you'd be agree with me, Glenn. I can assure you. But I was glad to get some sense of vindication. It might extend my marriage for another couple of years. <laughs> and even since then, the New York Times story has continued to be destroyed and deconstructed. And... One of the reporters on the Times story actually went on The View and essentially, effectively, in a rational world, admitted that their new book essentially exonerates Brett Kavanaugh. But, you know, the New York Times couldn't have led with that because uh, they would have gotten attacked by liberal Twitter. And, uh, and you know, I don't know who they think they're trying to sell the book to now. Maybe they feel like they have no choice at this point. It's not a book that proves that Brett Kavanaugh is guilty. It seems like they're trying, which is not going to work. They're trying to thread this needle and say, well, the truth is somewhere in the middle. No, no. <laughs> 
The truth is not somewhere in the middle on this. Either Brett Kavanaugh is a serial sexual predator, which there's no evidence that he is, or he's the victim of a media smear job that was facilitated purely to, to promote a political agenda. There, there's nowhere in the middle there. And, and frankly, you're not going to appeal to anybody in the middle there because those people don't buy books about this kind of thing. So uh, I hope the book is a disaster, even though I truly believe that if you, as I referenced in the Glenn Beck interview, if you look carefully at uh, what the reporters found and didn't find, it's the best exoneration of uh, Brett Kavanaugh that he could ever possibly imagine. Now, yesterday, the Democrats... Uh, continuing struggles with uh, their uh, attempt to impeach Donald Trump uh, continued with uh, Corey Lewandowski testifying in front of the Judiciary Committee. Now, uh, Lewandowski was once Trump's campaign manager. He has never worked in the Trump White House, which means he can there is absolutely no justification for any kind of claim of privilege on his testimony by the White House. But that has not stopped the White House from instructing him to not answer certain questions. They also prevented totally two other uh, White House aides at the time from testifying at all under an exceedingly bizarre interpretation of privilege. Frankly, there is no privilege. The White House is just making it up. They're thumbing their noses at the rule of law. They know that they can get away with it because no one in the conservative media is going to call them on it. And the American people are no longer paying attention. So they're basically peeing all over the process and and laughing at the Democrats. And look, I think the Democrats have been inept. I have been very critical of their strategy on this. I think they should have taken on impeachment from the moment they took over the House. Uh, and they should have uh, started with the emoluments clause and with what we already knew from Michael Cohen with regard to the campaign finance violations. They were they were too timid to do that. Uh, they thought that uh, Robert Mueller was going to hit a grand slam. And by the time Robert Mueller got around, uh, the bases weren't loaded and Robert Mueller couldn't even find his bat. Uh, you know, we were, I'm not going to get into that. Wait, we're not going to get into that. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> I, so we all know that that was a, a profound disappointment. So. Lewandowski uh, testifies partially, and this was a complete fiasco. And in a rational world, uh, would have created enormous amounts of outrage in the public. And uh, I can tell you that if everything was reversed and a a former uh, aide to a Democratic president who had never worked in the White House tried to pull this kind of stunt, like Lewandowski did, uh, Sean Hannity's hair would be on fire. Uh, Rush Limbaugh would be going crazy. Uh, Fox News Channel would be on breaking news alert. This is all they would be talking about. Instead, we're now living in a world where this is being applauded. This kind of childish behavior is being applauded. Now, I want to give you a sense of some of what happened. There are uh, part of the problem that the Democrats have is they they can't get this down into an easily understood clear, short soundbite, this entire story. You can't do it. And Trump's people know this, and they they play this to their own advantage. And one of the problems is that Lewandowski really wasn't held with his feet to the fire until pretty late in the process. It might even been the very end 
of his testimony when a Democratic attorney named Barry Burke finally got to question him. And here's just a, a, a fairly short snippet. Here's about nine minutes of Burke uh, questioning uh, Lewandowski. And, and just, I mean, I think it'll be pretty apparent, uh, one, that uh, Lewandowski is a liar, two, that he doesn't understand or doesn't care about the nature of what this process was supposed to be, and maybe most importantly, that there's something very important that they're trying to hide here. So here is uh, that clip from yesterday. Did you ever become concerned that the President of the United States had asked you to do something that could expose you to criminal liability? Was I concerned that the President asked me to do something? Not to the best of my knowledge. Were you ever concerned that the President had asked you to do something that put you in harm's way, made you feel that you were in trouble? I think I've asked and answered that question. Sir, I'd like to show you a video of an interview you did on Fox News. This was in January 16th, 2018. Oh, take the fifth, look, what, you take the fifth when you're in trouble. I didn't do anything and the campaign didn't do anything. And so I have no reason to take the fifth. I'm gonna answer every question. So you were answering that with regard to your appearance before the House Intelligence Committee. You say you take the fifth when you were in trouble. You didn't do anything, so you were going to testify, and you weren't going to take the test, the, the fifth, before that committee with regard to questions about the campaign. Were you concerned, sir, that you had done something with regard to delivering or agreeing to deliver the president's message, and therefore you could get in trouble based on what you agreed to do and attempted to do? I have no concerns. Isn't it a fact, sir, that contrary to your testimony that you voluntarily appeared in front of the special counsel, when you were called to provide answers to the special counsel, you indicated your intent to assert your rights under the Fifth Amendment not to self-incriminate. Is that true? Not to the best of my recollection. Is that in the report, sir? Isn't that true, sir, that you refused to testify without receiving immunity? I don't believe that's accurate. I'd be happy if you could show me that it is in the report. I'd be happy to answer it. Sir, are you, is it your testimony under oath that you never received immunity prior to answering questions of the special counsel? That's a question for special counsel Mueller and I won't be answering mechanics of the investigation. My question to you, sir, is did you refuse to answer the special counsel's questions without getting a grant of immunity protecting you from having your words used against you in a criminal prosecution? I've asked and answered your question. Are you denying, sir, that you refused to answer questions and asserted your rights under the Fifth Amendment not to self-incriminate unless the special counsel gave you immunity? I've, already, I've asked and answered your question, sir. Sir, do you agree with your statement that you would assert the Fifth Amendment if you believed you were in trouble, to quote your words to Fox News? I don't think I was any under, under any obligation when speaking to Fox News to not engage in hyperbole if I so chose. I was not under oath at any time during that discussion, but I've been very forthright today. Is it still your testimony, sir, that you made under oath earlier that you appeared voluntarily before the special counsel and not under a grant of immunity? To the best of my recollection, I, I appeared in front of the special counsel voluntarily. Did you receive immunity, sir? Look, as Director Mueller stated when asked, about Don Jr.'s communication at special counsel, his intent to invoke the Fifth Amendment right, Director Mueller said, and I quote, I'm not going to answer that. So if you want to direct that question to Director Mueller, it's on page 77 of the report, you're welcome to do so. Did you receive immunity, sir? I've asked and answered your question. 
So let me ask you, have you ever been untruthful about being asked to give answer questions of the special counsel? I've already testified. I've been honest to the best of my ability. Sir, let me show you another clip, and this one was from March 25th, 2018, from Meet the Press, March 25th, 2018. Have you met with the uh, special counsel, Robert Mueller? I know you've testified before the Senate and the House Intel investigations. What about the special counsel? Look, I have said very candidly, I'll be happy to speak with the special counsel if they'd like to do that. Uh, I've been very open about, I volunteered to testify for 12 hours in front of the House Committee. I've testified in front of the Senate Committee. And I'll make myself available because I was there at the very beginning of the campaign. Have they asked there for you no yet, collusion. though? Have they asked for not, you? Not yet. No. You've no, not they been subpoenaed? Yet, Chuck, nothing? Okay. Sir, was that truthful, what you said on national television on March 25th, 2018, that the special counsel had not asked to speak to you at that date? I don't know if they asked to speak to me by that date. So you know your interview that's reported in the special counsel report was on April 6th, 2018. Is that accurate? Is yes. that the day of the interview? Yes. yes. If that's what the report says, and I'll take it to be accurate. And, sir, you made public statements denying that you had been asked to give answers to the special counsel when you actually had. You had been untruthful about that. Isn't that true, sir? Are we talking about a, a discussion with the media or in front of a committee of jurisdiction where I've been sworn to testify? I'm talking about your public statements to the American public. On oh, I'm sorry. Nobody in front of Congress has ever lied to the public before. I'm sorry. Sir, is that an admission that you did lie? Absolutely not. Did you lie, sir, in television interviews denying that you've been asked to give answers to the special counsel? I don't believe so. So you deny that you ever lied in public statements about whether you were no, asked? What I'm saying is when under oath, I've always told the truth, whether it was before special counsel, whether it was before the House Judiciary Committee, whether it was before the House Intelligence Committee on two separate occasions, or before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Every time I've raised my right hand to God, I've sworn and told the truth. That's not my question to you, sir. We'll get to that. My question to you, sir, is on national television, did you lie about your relationship with the special counsel and whether they sought your interview? I don't know. And, sir, did you lie about it because you didn't want the world to find out that you were afraid you could be exposed to criminal liability and you were only going to appear as to certain issues with a grant of immunity, protecting your words from being used against you in a criminal prosecution? I'm going to go back to what Director Mueller stated. He's not going to answer that question. I'm not going to allow you to use me as a backdoor into his methods. If you'd like to question Director Mueller about the way of the investigation techniques of the Justice Department, you've had that opportunity to do so, but clearly you didn't. So take him back here, bring him before the committee, and ask those questions. Those questions are not for me. Let me ask you this, sir. Prior to the Mueller report being published in redacted form, did you ever misrepresent what you did on behalf of the president? I can't think of an instance where that would have occurred. Let me show you an interview that you did uh, on May 14th, 2019. Excuse me. A, uh, I'm going to show it to you from February 22nd, 2019. Let me show it to you. Excuse me. Excuse me. May 14th, 2019. Thank you. I don't ever remember the president ever asking me to get involved with Jeff Sessions or the Department of Justice in any way, okay. shape, or form so, ever. So you did you hear that, sir? That was you saying on MSNBC, you don't ever remember the president ever asking you to get involved with Jeff Sessions or the Department of Justice in any way, shape, or form. That wasn't true, was it, sir? I heard that. And that was not true, was it? I have no obligation to be honest with the media just because there's just as dishonest as anybody else. So, 
So you're admitting, sir, you were not being truthful in that clip, correct? My interview with Ari Melberg? Yes. Can be interpreted any way you'd like. Let me, would you like me to play it again? You're welcome to, please. Play it one more time. I don't ever remember the president ever asking me to get involved with Jeff Sessions or the Department of Justice in any way, okay. shape, or form so, ever. So you and, sir, it is true in May 2019, you absolutely remembered when the president asked you to deliver a message to the attorney general of a speech for him to give related to the special counsel investigation. Isn't that correct? I'd have to think about it. Are you claiming, sir, that and you had been interviewed by the special counsel about those very events in which you discussed and you said was accurately reported in the report a year earlier. Are you saying, sir, you may have forgotten it by the time you were interviewed just before the report was publicly released? I'm saying my memory was clearly much fresher when I actually gave the interview with the special counsel's report. Sir, is it your testimony before this committee that when you said you did not remember the president ever asking you to get involved with Jeff Sessions or the Department of Justice, you were saying you were being truthful? And, sir, I don't believe there's any reason to consult with your counsel. The question is, are you a truth teller in that interview? I'm a truth teller every time I stand before Congress or a committee of jurisdiction and raise my hand and swear to God under oath. My question, sir, is when you said the president never asked you to get involved with Mr. Sessions. I have no obligation to have a candid conversation with the media whatsoever, just like they have no obligation to cover me honestly, and they do it inaccurately all the time. So you're admitting that on national television you were lying there? What I'm saying is... They have been inaccurate on many occasions, and perhaps I was inaccurate at that time. So I want to remind you, you're under oath. Now, you would think that if a guy goes in front of the Judiciary Committee and under oath uses as the only defense he has that, look, you can't use anything I said in the media uh, to impeach me or my, impeach my credibility because I lie to the media. I mean, that's essentially what Lewandowski said. Look, I, I'm under no obligation to tell the truth in the news media, so it's irrelevant that you're playing clips of what I said at the time period in, in order to try to uh, to prove the, that, you know, and this to be clear what the issue here is, is that Trump, it's, it's very obvious that Trump was trying to use Lewandowski to intimidate Jeff Sessions into killing the Mueller investigation. That's what was trying to happen, which I think is... Again, no one wants to put all these pieces together, but I think that's significant because it shows further why Trump fired Sessions. Correct. And that that is the key moment of obstruction on all of this. And it just frustrates me to the end that so very few people uh, are making that connection because everyone thinks, well, the president has the uh, ultimate authority to to fire the attorney general. Really? Um, not when they're being investigated themselves, their campaign is being investigated in a very serious matter, and they have publicly said that their attorney general should not have recused themselves from that investigation, and then the day after an election, they fire that person, and they replace them with a total hack who goes ahead and obstructs the end of that investigation and the report of that investigation and lies about it. When you have that set of facts, I'm sorry, that's not a legitimate firing, especially when the guy never did anything that Trump didn't like. He was his biggest supporter, clean as a whistle, no legitimate reason for firing, except you're obstructing justice. And the Lewandowski testimony goes directly to that. 
Of course, they couldn't elicit that from him because he was being a dick. Let's be clear. He was being a dick. And uh, and maybe the bigger issue here is what this says about where we are in our culture. And I want to get to that momentarily. But before we do that, you would think that when a guy goes and says on national television under oath to the Judiciary Committee, don't believe anything I say, that the news media would then go, oh, all right. Um, so we're not going to have him on the air anymore because he's just acknowledged that he's a lying sack of crap and that he doesn't care what he says on television is true or not. Now, there are a lot of people you could say that about, but they haven't admitted it under oath on national television in front of the Judiciary Committee in what is supposed to be the beginning of an impeachment proceeding of the President of the United States. I'm sorry. If that doesn't get you disqualified from being asked on national television, I don't know what does. But the news media continues to play right into Donald Trump's hands, and they did so again because this very morning, this very morning, Lewandowski was asked on television by CNN. Now, to be fair, uh, Allison Camerata, the, the host on CNN, held uh, Lewandowski's feet to the fire pretty good and actually got a remarkable exchange, which I think tells you everything you need to know about uh, a whole lot of this story. Here's what that sounded like when she interviewed uh, Lewandowski today on CNN. So you confirmed that you were asked to obstruct justice. No, Allison, please. That's not what I confirmed at all. By the way, the Mueller report was very clear. Uh, there was no collusion. There was no obstruction. That's and not what, what I, the Mueller what report confirm, said, Corey. It absolutely says that. And Corey, you, you, should, you should read page. You should read the page that that states that. On. And, and Bob Mueller. Wait a had second, Corey. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Time out. Time out. Did you read the Mueller report? No, I never did. <laughs> oh my God! You cannot be serious. <laughs> uh, I mean, but that doesn't. If that doesn't tell you everything you know, need to know, I don't know what does. Uh, I, I mean, this whole thing is a farce. Uh, I have to say that the only part about this that uh, surprises me at all is just how far the Trump forces, and clearly Donald Trump in particular, are willing to go to continue to try to stifle this investigation, to, to prevent the two other aides from testifying at all under a bogus interpretation of privilege, to restrict Lewandowski and to have Lewandowski clearly go there, and, uh, and, and, and you know, this has been said many times, but it's so true. He had an audience of one person. He had one person he was trying to impress, and that was the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And, and, and this president, you don't impress by being dignified, by uh, being honest, uh, by being classy, uh, by being knowledgeable. No, 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 no. You impress this president by being a dick. Correct. That's that's where we are now. That's where we are. We are now, and I think this might be being generous, we are now at a, a stage where huge portions uh, of the public and, and apparently all of the conservative media that I've seen, at least the pro-Trump uh, conservative media, they, uh, they view that any argument, any debate is to be won by whatever makes liberals cry. That as long as you own the liberals, like it's third grade, like we're, we're on a playground in third grade, and if you make the other team cry, then you have won. You, you, you have won the argument because you were a bigger dick than they were, and you made them cry. 
I, I, that's where we are. That's where we are. I mean, really? Really? We're better than that. No. No, we are not. No. I, I think this is incredibly significant, way beyond the role of Lewandowski in this pseudo impeachment hearing, which really isn't even an impeachment hearing. I, I have referred to Jerry Nadler as basically uh, you know, a wild animal who's trying to do this uh, crazy mating dance, and he's clearly been castrated. So he's got no balls, and he's trying to do a mating dance, and everyone's just laughing at him because there's no way to get this done. He can't get it up. He's got no balls because Nancy has him in a jar. Nancy Pelosi has a jar in a, in a jar on her desk. So he has no real ability to do this, and the Trump people know this. But I'm still amazed that they're going to this length. And the fact that they're going to this length indicates to me that they know there's very serious issues to be hidden. They would not be acting this way if they felt truly confident that there was nothing there, and certainly not uh, no collusion, no obstruction. There absolutely, positively was obstruction of justice, and any other president in any other situation would have already been impeached. And in a rational world, we would have already had at least a legitimate trial. I don't know whether or not there would have been other presidents that would have been removed. It would have been depending on the political circumstances of the time. But Trump has been able to escape this largely because of Democratic naivete and incompetence, largely because of media incompetence, and largely because he's willing to go places no other president would ever dream of going. Correct. He runs the Oakland Raiders. Remember the Oakland Raiders under Al Davis, the NFL football team that was was just win, baby. Just win. It doesn't matter how many rules you got to break. In fact, if you're not cheating... You're not trying hard enough. That was basically the theme of the Oakland Raiders. The, another way of looking at it, and I hate to do this because it's got a positive connotation, in at least my mind, but you know, the American Revolutionary War was fought between colonists who didn't give a damn about the old rules and, and the British who you know, told you exactly when they were going to show up and they lined up in formation and you know, they, they had rules of decorum. And guess what? The colonists ended up winning despite long odds. That's a very, very, very simplistic view of the Revolutionary War. But that's basically what's happening here. Donald Trump has a few areas of genius, and, and, I, and it's evil genius. I've mentioned this before when it comes to lying. Trump understood very early on in life that when you lie, and especially if you lie brazenly and you lie so dramatically that uh, people won't be able to wrap their minds around the idea that someone could possibly have lied that brazenly, you have an inherent huge advantage in any battle. Why? Because now you, if it's a race, you've just been given a massive head start. The lie freezes the other person because they need to be able to prove that you lied before they can act as if you lied, especially early on in a relationship when they don't know yet that you're a pathological liar. So if you lie to someone, you have them automatically off guard because they won't know you're lying. And Inevitably, it takes a long time to be able to prove a lie because we have such a high standard for proving that someone lied, especially, by the way, when they're president of the United States. The media to this day is still afraid of calling 
Donald Trump a liar on specific statements because they want to be able to make sure they're right. Well, by the time you prove a lie, and proving a lie is often very, very difficult, by the time you've proven it, it's already too late because Trump already has his head start. Well, so Trump has understood this, and he has used this to his advantage in a tremendous way throughout his life, throughout his business career and his political career, and he's written it all the way to the White House, and it's helped him survive within the White House. Well, taking Lewandowski's testimony, I believe that he has also realized, Trump has, something that's similar to this rule about lying, and that is that so much of the rules of life and even politics and even law are self-enforced. And here's what I mean by that. And the, the, the most obvious real-world example of this is speeding, right? Most people, we speed a little bit, right? It's impossible. It would be impossible for the government or the local police force to enforce speeding against every single car. They just do not have the possible resources to do that. So by and large, we are self-enforcing the rules. Maybe even a better example might be our taxes, since Trump doesn't want us to see his taxes and uh, has bragged about cheating on his taxes before. Our tax system is very much although maybe not quite as much, self-enforced. You self-enforce the rules when it comes to paying the proper taxes. Well, Trump has realized that this is universal and that this is a weakness in the system that he can take advantage of. And Corey Lewandowski drove a Mack truck through that loophole because, and here's what I mean by that, in any previous administration, they wouldn't flout the concept of privilege to this degree. They wouldn't prevent people from not testifying. They wouldn't ignore subpoenas. They wouldn't tell, they wouldn't have the audacity to tell a person who never worked in the White House that they have the authority to limit their testimony. They would never do that. But Trump realizes there's no mechanism for enforcing these sorts of rules, especially when the conservative media is on his side and no one on the Republican side of the aisle is going to say boo because they're terrified of Trump's cult. I love the poorly educated. And so so Trump understands, hey, look, what's to stop us? Nothing's to stop us because the rules are usually self-enforced. Well, if you don't give a crap about the rules, if you don't care about precedent, you don't care about what future presidents might be able to do with these new precedents, if you don't care about the rule of law, if you don't care about common decency, if you don't care about being a dick in front of the Judiciary Committee on national television, if none of that matters to you, then guess what? You can win. You can win pretty easily because the other side is impotent. Because we weren't set up for this. Our system was not set up to handle this kind of a situation. And so that, to me, might be the most significant element of Lewandowski's testimony. It is evidence that we as a society and our systems have failed 
dramatically because Donald Trump understands our vulnerabilities. And when he doesn't give a crap about what the rules are, what it says on paper, what the standards are supposed to be, when you're, the behavior is supposed to be self-enforced, he can use this to his advantage. And he has and he will continue to do so. And there's no way to stop him. There's no way to stop him. And, and, and the Democrats are flailing away on impeachment. Now, I love this. I love this. The next, the, the word is that they're now, now they're going to go after on, on the emoluments clause. Now, now, almost a year after being uh, given the majority in the House of Representatives, now Democrats are finally going to go after him on the emoluments clause. You cannot be serious. That should have been the first thing they did because there was two years of evidence already in the books on that, and it's only gotten more pronounced this year in, on various levels, including what's going on with the, uh, the Turnberry uh, controversy, which we've talked about previously. And I found it very interesting that all of a sudden Donald Trump is starting to praise Elijah Cummings. You know, Elijah Cummings. We're better than that. He's the guy who's the head of the oversight committee, whose committee is looking into the emerging Turnberry golf club scandal that I referred to a couple times in previous uh, podcasts. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Now, a couple other things I want to get to very quickly. Uh, Trump has twisted himself in a pretzel on this Iran situation that is so incomprehensible that I don't understand it. I mean, he now today he's announcing new sanctions against Iran over this situation in Saudi Arabia, where apparently Iran was responsible for the drone strikes that took out a lot of Saudi uh, oil fields. Uh, but he's he's doing such in a way that is incredibly confusing even Lindsey Graham tweeted that it was, it was a sign of weakness the way that Trump was handling this. And then Trump tweeted Lindsey Graham correcting him. Now, I don't know whether or not Graham then begged for forgiveness and got down on his knees and said, thank you, sir. May I have another? I don't know. But that's basically what, where Lindsey Graham, uh, now that John McCain is dead, that's how far uh, Lindsey Graham has fallen. But uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I just know that uh, this is a situation where Trump may actually benefit from being so incomprehensible and being so all over the place that Iran is as confused as I am. But we'll see. Now, interestingly, and I, I was flabbergasted this morning when I found out that we have a new national security advisor for, for Donald Trump, and his name is Robert C. O'Brien. And when I read that it was Robert C. O'Brien, I'm like, you've what? Seriously, what? wait a minute. That, that can't be the same Robert C. O'Brien I know because I know Robert C. O'Brien. <laughs> Robert C. O'Brien and I uh, were a member of the same golf club, uh, Oakmont Country Club in Glendale, uh, California, for, for several years. We knew each other pretty well. And I remember very clearly uh, having lunch in some time during the 2008 election cycle where he was trying very hard to get me to support Mitt Romney for president. Now, look, you could be a Mitt Romney supporter in uh, 2008 and, and I guess theoretically be a Donald Trump uh, national security advisor in 2019. Uh, but I when I found out about this and I was I was stunned because I'm like there. The guy I know, there's no way he's a Trump guy. I mean, this is the most mainstream, very intelligent, 
uh, you know, non-Trump kind of guy that you could possibly ever imagine. And so when I found out it was Robert C. O'Brien, I went through my old emails because he and I had corresponded for years after this. And, and I have e- a long email exchange with Robert C. O'Brien where he's trying to convince me that Mitt Romney should be the candidate in 2016, which is when Donald Trump, of course, won the Republican nomination. Now, I'm sorry. There's no possible way you can be a huge Mitt Romney guy in 2016 and uh, then all of a sudden in 2019 not only be a Donald Trump supporter, but kiss his ass enough so that you're his national security advisor, the fourth one in less than three years. If I had told Robert C. O'Brien, even in 2015 in that email exchange, but certainly in 2008 when we were having lunch, if I had said, you know, Robert, uh, let me tell you something. Um, Mitt Romney's never going to be president, but guess who is going to be president? Uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, Donald Trump is going to be president uh, one day. And guess what? You're not going to believe this. You are going to be his national security advisor. (laughs) I swear to God, Robert C. O'Brien would have had me immediately removed from the club premises and put into a nut house. And not that they still have those things uh, here, but the, the but the proverbially, uh, that's what would have happened. Figuratively, that's what would have happened. He would have told me I was completely full of shit and insane because one, Trump would never be president. And two, he would never lower himself to work for somebody like Donald Trump. And by the way, while I don't know him that well, I don't know exactly how he is qualified to be national security advisor. He's a very smart guy. I personally think he got the job because He looks the part. He's a very distinguished, good-looking guy. And we all know how important that is to Donald Trump. Correct. I mean, that's not how we should be picking uh, national security advisors. But he looks the part a lot more than his predecessor, John Bolton. It's been said many times that that Trump did not like Bolton because of his his, uh, unkempt mustache. Uh, Well, he's got no problem with uh, Robert C. O'Brien because Robert C. O'Brien looks like a frickin' movie star. Uh, He also bizarrely... Uh, went to Sweden to help out in that that rapper situation where Trump, for some reason, uh, wanted Sweden to go easy on the black American rapper uh, for an assault charge. And I guess Trump thought that that was a big success, so that qualifies him to be national security advisor. Other than that, the only thing I, I know that would qualify Robert uh, C. O'Brien for a national security advisor, of course, is that he's been a Los Angeles lawyer for many years, which is basically a foreign country. So, you know, we were basically uh, hiring someone from a foreign country here in Los Angeles to be our national security advisor. My basic rule uh, uh, when it comes to uh, the presidency or anyone uh, this high up is if they're hiring people that close to them that have ever been in my orbit, that's a problem. <laughs> Because you're way too into the minor leagues at that point. You're you are way you're going way too low <laughs> if someone has ever been significantly in my orbit. And unfortunately, there's several people 
that have been around Trump who have also been in John Ziegler's orbit. But that's a pretty good rule to live by. If you've ever had, if you've ever had close contact with John Ziegler, you probably shouldn't be national security advisor or anything quite at that level. Uh, a quick update on what's going on on the Democratic primary side and who will face uh, Donald Trump in the uh, 2020 election, assuming that, uh, that Trump is the nominee, which I think is a fairly good assumption, although I still still think it's theoretically possible that he pulls a fast one and and does not run. I don't maybe we should start putting the percentages on that, but it would be a very, very low number. It's just a theoretical possibility uh, the the race on the Democratic side continues to go exactly as I have worried that it will. And that is that it is becoming a two person race between uh, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. And while Bernie Sanders is still hanging in there, uh, it is very clear to me that we're going to narrow this thing down to maybe three candidates. It's going to take a while. Uh, you know, the, the fourth and fifth candidates, Kamala Harris and, and Pete Buttigieg, are significantly behind. Buttigieg is actually now beating Harris. Harris appears to be dead in the water, and that's bad for Biden. See, I think Harris being uh, at least in double digits is good for Biden because that sucks a lot of the energy. You know, she's the only other major female in the race away from Elizabeth Warren. And when Elizabeth Warren is able to completely uh, dominate uh, the female progressive lane, uh, that's a problem because it now gets her into the mid to high 20s in the polls, and and she's basic. She's almost neck and neck, both nationally as well as in the early states, with Joe Biden. But she's got a hell of a lot more energy on her side, both from her own self personally, as well as uh, with the nature of her crowds. And we all know that the progressives are way more into this than moderates are. Moderates don't really care very much, and I I think Iowa is going to be a big problem for Joe Biden. Uh, depending on how many people drop out between now and Iowa, the Iowa caucuses require a very passionate following. And there's no doubt that Elizabeth Warren's following is much more passionate than Joe Biden's. And uh, so, you know, to me, the only way Biden survives this, and and my horse in this race is that Biden beats Trump, at least currently today. Now, you know, maybe Democrats will will handicap him so much that he won't be able to do that. They'll destroy him so much in this process that he won't be the same Joe Biden. The Trump forces are trying to forward this narrative, and both sides, the conservative and the liberal media, are more than happy to carry this football for the Trump side because they don't want Biden to be the nominee. They don't want Biden to be president because that's bad for their business. But this 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 narrative that Joe Biden is nuts and he you know he can't be president because he's losing it and he's he's got dementia or something and I, it's it's just amazing to me the Trump campaign put out a video of a devastating video against Donald Trump it was not I mean against Joe Biden it was not an honest video but it's just amazing to me the audacity of the Trump campaign this is a campaign on behalf of a man who is dangerously insane Donald Trump. He has numerous pathologies that make him unfit to be president of the United States. And his campaign, which has been telling people, don't believe anything that the mainstream media says. Don't believe anything they say. It's all fake news. Put out a video using the media and comments from the media to 
make the case that Joe Biden is the one who is mentally unfit. I mean, you almost have to admire that kind of audacity from the Trump campaign. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be at least somewhat effective. It shouldn't be in a Democratic primary, but I think it's going to make some people worried that Joe Biden, as Cory Booker said, can't get the football across the, the goal line without fumbling. Uh, and, uh, and you know what? There, there might be uh, some legitimacy to that argument, but Democrats are forgetting, and this is to their own peril, they're forgetting the Pocahontas issue. They're pretending that Pocahontas never happened. I'm referring to the fact that Elizabeth Warren, throughout her career as a lawyer and an academic, claimed to be a Native American. She didn't do it once. She did it in official documents numerous times over many years for the purposes of trying to take advantage of that designation. I'm sorry. Trump is going to use that as the Hillary emails hammer. And frankly, I think in some places in this country, it might be more effective than the Hillary emails hammer. And Democrats are just pretending that that never happened, that she never took that humiliating DNA test that proved that she's not a Native American and claimed that she was. That Trump is salivating, salivating over that potential issue. And Democrats are just pretending it never happened and they do so at their own peril. So I'm going to slightly adjust our uh, continuing look at the percentages for whether or not Trump uh, is unable to finish his first term in office and whether or not he is reelected. We're going to make it 9% because of the flailing at yesterday's hearing by Democrats who can't seem to get a handle on this whole impeachment situation. So 9% chance that Trump does not finish his first term in office. And I'm going to raise the percentage chance of Trump being reelected to 43%, simply because things are continuing to look good for Elizabeth Warren uh, being the Democratic nominee, and that puts Trump right back in the ballgame. So there we are as of today, episode number 56 of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.